0: John chapter (laughs) 1. So we finished what we might call the prologue, verses 1 through 18. And what we said... The prologue, the function of the prologue was to set us up for the story so that we would be prepared and ready for the story. And the illustration we used was kind of like a play when the narrator tells us what's happening behind the scenes so that when the the screen opens and the play starts, we understand the story. And we're aware of what's going on. And so the the curtain, that's right, the curtain is about to open and the play is about to begin. The greatest story of all is about to start. So who shows up first? Who is the first person on the scene of the story of Jesus? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the very first person we see. And that should not surprise us at all. You see, every gospel has John the Baptist towards the beginning of the story. John belongs right here at the beginning of the story. This is where he should be. So the question is, what is John doing here? What is he all about? And we're told exactly what he's doing in verse 19. In the words, this is the testimony of John. John is giving his testimony of Jesus. He is bearing witness about Jesus. Testimony and witness are the same words. He is bearing witness of Jesus. He's testifying of Jesus. And so we might go a little further and say, what does that mean? What does that mean in reference to the story? And one way of putting it is that John is introducing The Messiah. You see, he is going to point him out to us. And he is going to say, here he is. (laughs) Here is the one we've waited for. Let me introduce you to him. My whole life has been about this. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I've been preparing for. This is what I've been talking about. This is the one, the only one that even matters. The curtain is drawn back. John comes on the stage and he introduces the main character. And that is the sole reason why John even exists. Most of us today are going to be reintroduced to Jesus, aren't we? (laughs) We have already been introduced to Jesus. But we always need to be reintroduced. Every single day. There's no one that we need more to be reintroduced to than Jesus himself. And another word for saying that is we need to hear the witness of who Jesus is. It's kind of the same thing. Ever ever go somewhere where you are going to be introduced to someone and you're disappointed by who it is? You thought it was going to be someone else? I went to a camp, a, sport, a Christian sports camp, when I was in high school. And when I got to the camp, I was very surprised. And I even remember his name. Uh, a runner, this is an a, a, a athletic camp, and so I was there for runners. Isn't that strange? A camp camp runners <laughs> it's a little weird in itself and a man named andy powell was there and andy powell had run and most of you this is going to go right over your head because you're not going to get it but if you do this is pretty incredible he ran a 407 mile i believe as a sophomore in high school which is just incredible and so i did not expect for him to be there but what it turned out was that he thought i was faster than i was and so thought he thought he was going to this camp to run with me, and to get better. And so he was disappointed when he found out I was okay, but not nearly as good as he thought thought I was. And the point of saying that is that Jesus never disappoints. Jesus never disappoints. And we always need to be reintroduced to him. There's no one greater. But also by introducing Jesus to us, John is going to show us, by his example, how to introduce others to Jesus Christ. He's going to be an example to us of how to witness and how to be a faithful witness. Now, it's not going to be an exhaustive lesson on how to bear witness to Jesus, but he will give us some key elements on what that looks like. So we need to be reintroduced to Jesus this morning and you might say, I already know Jesus but because of who he is we need to constantly be reintroduced to him and that's what John does here in this passage. and before we do that I want to go back to the prologue for just a brief moment because we're supposed to as we're introduced to Jesus we're supposed to carry this information about who he is with us all right And so as John introduces Jesus to us, we're supposed to already have this understanding from the first four verses of John about who Jesus is. Remember, he was or is the preexistent one. He existed for eternity past. Remember, he is the creator of all things, right? Remember, he is God with us. And he is the possessor and the giver of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, right? Right? Life comes from him. He owns it. He possesses it. Remember us saying that when we said we want to be independent of God, we also became independent of life. And we became death itself, didn't we? We died. So when someone is introducing someone else, it's always interesting to know what they say about them. And so as John, who has spent his whole life preparing for this moment, As we hear him introduce Jesus, we ask ourselves, what is he going to say? (laughs) How is he going to introduce Jesus? And notice in verse 29, John introduces Jesus as the one who removes the guilt of our sin. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John who's been waiting for this moment. You can almost picture him. It doesn't say he pointed, but I imagine he sees Jesus in the background, coming his way. And he says to his disciples, whoever he's with, he says, behold, behold the Lamb of God, as he looks at him. And behold is an exclamation mark, right? Here he is. Here is the one, the one we've been waiting for. He has come, and he's right here with us. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, to understand this, you have to first understand that your greatest problem is your sin. And there are so many things that we consider problems today, but there is really only one problem you have. Absolutely only one real problem you have. And that is sin and rebellion against God. If we deal with our sin and rebellion against God, we have no problems at all. Right? Not ultimately. Sin is rebellion against God's rule. It's rebellion against God's good and right rule, His revealed will. will, And it separates us from God. It separates us from His favor. It leaves us under the wrath of God, and justly so. Your sin is therefore the greatest problem that you could ever have. You see, the people of the day thought the greatest problem was the occupation, the foreign occupation of the Romans and their army that occupied them. They thought they needed to be delivered from that bondage to the Romans. We often think that COVID is our greatest problem, or some physical ailment, or our marriage, or a job or some friendship, or our children, (laughs) you know, whatever it is when we're in these difficulties that we get consumed by them and we think they are the biggest problems. But if you're ever to be right with God, you must have your sin dealt with. And the problem is we can't fix it, can we? There is nothing in us, nothing around us or outside of us that can fix our problem for us. We need God-sized help. And that's what John is saying here, isn't he? John is saying, here is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, who deals with our greatest problem. And the word lamb there is so important because it explains to us in a a picture format how God does this, how God takes away our sin. If you were to look at the Old Testament, you could see many places where John might be referring to when he says, Jesus is the Lamb who takes away our sin. So what is John referring to? And I'm going to just bring up a number of possibilities. I think all of them need to be understood for us to understand the picture here that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So perhaps this is referring to the Passover Lamb of Exodus 12. Remember, an innocent Lamb, right? An innocent Lamb, a pure Lamb, was to be sacrificed, and their blood was was to be spread along the doorposts. Right? And when the angel of death would pass over their house, it would pass over it. And the wrath of God would not come upon that household. So, does, so Jesus, in a similar way, is the innocent, sacrificial, substitu- substitutionary death who appeases God's wrath for us and makes atonement for us so that the wrath of God passes over us and we receive the favor of God instead. Perhaps he's referring to the lambs that were sacrificed every day to make atonement for sin in Exodus 29, verse 38 through 39. And we know the Lamb of God would obtain full and final forgiveness of sin through his death for all who trust in him and look to him. Perhaps Isaiah 53, verse 6 is what is intended here. We read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Through the cross, our iniquity was laid on him. He bore the weight of our sin. The wrath of God was poured out on him in our place so that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. Perhaps, and this is one of my favorites, perhaps Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 8 is what's being referred to when he took up Isaac up the mountain to make a sacrifice. Perhaps that is what is referring to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, Isaac asks him the really obvious question. You know, he's got everything for the sacrifice, but there's no lamb. And so Isaac looks to his dad and says, Dad, <laughs> where's the lamb? <laughs> We're missing something here. And what does Abraham say? God will provide a lamb. And so John is saying here, behold, here is the lamb. God has provided the lamb who would die in our place. And all of these are probably intended to be understood here. So what does it mean you'll take away the sin of the world? What does world mean? I mean, Jesus did not literally take away every sin of the world when he died. Let's be clear about that. (laughs) That would be universalism. If he did that, then God, everybody would be in heaven. Because God cannot hold the sin against someone whom he has paid for, can he? <laughs> so not everyone is forgiven. So what does it mean? The word, the word world here means not just Jews, as was expected, but surprisingly also Gentiles the effectiveness of the work of Christ on the cross is not just for the Jews. It's also for the Gentiles. It means all the world without distinction, but not all the world without exception. And through the sacrifice of himself as the lamb, he would take away the sins, not only of the Jews but of who believe, but also of the Gentiles. What an amazing thought here. And we just have to pause. I think we've heard this phrase so many times. I think it loses its significance to us. It loses its impact to us. We lose sight of what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's an amazing thought. We need to be reintroduced to Jesus who deals with our greatest problem. John also introduces Jesus as the one through whom the Spirit would overflow with life-transforming power. In verses 31 through 33. It says, I myself not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now you have to understand, Jesus did not have a halo around his head. (laughs) He did not have anything that would automatically identify him as the Messiah. In fact, he looked like everybody else. When you looked at him physically, there was no marker setting him apart from anyone else. John did not know he was the Messiah. That's what it means here. It doesn't mean John was not acquainted with him, but he did not know him as the Messiah up to this point. That he's talking about here. He did not recognize him as the Messiah. He could have grown up with him. And known him as an acquaintance. But until this point he didn't know he was the Messiah. That's what he's saying. So you might ask if John didn't know him. Through any outward obvious sign in his appearance. How then did he come to know he was the Messiah? And John explains in verse 32. How he came to identify him as the Messiah. God told him beforehand. He said. He on whom you see the spirit descend. He is the one. He is the Messiah. We see that in verse 33. And then, so when John baptized Jesus, the Spirit of God descended on him as a dove, like a dove. And therefore, he was able to say in a concrete way, this is what God said would happen, and this is who God said would be the Messiah. And he was able to identify him as the Messiah. And some say this was six months before This event we're seeing in John, we we don't know for sure, but that's a possibility. I'm not even sure how they came up with that. But the Spirit of God descended on Jesus is more, the Spirit of God descending on Jesus is more than just an identification that he is the Messiah. It also tells us something about what he would do. It tells us something about who he is and what he would do. So what does the Spirit descending on Jesus tell us? About what he would do. Well, in the Old Testament, God would come upon people for special tasks, wouldn't he? The Spirit of God would come on people, anointing them for special tasks, such as kingship, such as priesthood. And so it's not surprising that God identifies the Messiah through, this, through the Spirit coming on him as a dove, or like a dove. But there's a difference with Jesus here in how he comes and how the Spirit of God comes upon him than how God anointed people in the past. And that is with the word remain. It says the Spirit of God remained on him. Remained on him. The Spirit of God would come for a specific task and then would leave them in the Old Testament. But here the Spirit of God remains on him. (laughs) Meaning he is full of the Spirit all the time. It is a permanent fixture of who he is. Jesus has the Spirit without limit. This has incredible implication regarding Jesus' ministry. He would be the fountain from whom the Spirit of God would pour out from God into the world. He would be the distributor of the Holy Spirit throughout his ministry. Like a vessel or a container carrying the Spirit of God through the world, delivering people from their sin and creating worshipers. And we see this ultimately being fulfilled at Pentecost, don't we? In Acts 1 verse 8. Empowering God's church to be a witness of the gospel and to worship Him. And you can understand the significance of what this means by contrasting John's baptism of the Spirit, uh, John's baptism of water, with Jesus' baptism of the Spirit, can't you? As John does here. That's what he says here, doesn't he? John was sent by God to baptize with water. And so as they would be baptized, they would be anticipating, saying, I need to be cleansed. This is signifying my need to be cleansed by God. They're acknowledging by faith that God was the one who was going to cleanse them, ultimately through the Messiah. And he was preparing them for the Messiah to come. But Jesus, on the other hand, would baptize with the Holy Spirit. It would not be a symbolic water baptism. It would be powerfully the real thing, the transforming work of God to his people. John finally introduces Jesus as the Son of God. We see this in verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The, the term Son of God has to do with a, with an intimate relationship that is unique between the Son and the Father. Someone said it said in Sunday school that is absolutely right, a relationship that was there for eternity past that is a one and only unique relationship, unparalleled by any other. But also to call Jesus the Son of God identifies something of who he is. When someone says, for instance, The son of, they are kind of saying, like father, like son, right? (laughs) They are saying, this is the son of this person. And oftentimes, they're connecting the son to the father and saying, they have similar attributes. They are alike. Their identity is alike, right? Peacemakers, for instance, according to Matthew 5, verse 9, are called what? They're called sons of God. Why? Because they are imitating God. They are like their father similarly valorous men according to deuteronomy 3 verse 18 are called sons of valor right a wicked person on the other hand according to psalm 89 verse 2 is called a son of wickedness those who deserve death according to first samuel 26:16 are called sons of death and judas iscariot was called in john 17 verse 12 a son of perdition jesus on the other hand is the unique son of god in every way you know if you look at the old testament Israel is called God's son, aren't they? But they hardly resembled God's son, didn't they, (laughs) throughout their lives. But in the gospel, Jesus is the true son of God. He is the true Israel. And being attached to Jesus by faith, we become the true children of God, don't we? Now after you're introduced, or should we say reintroduced to Jesus, you're going to want to introduce others to him. You cannot truly be introduced to Jesus and not want others to be introduced to Jesus as well. That's impossible. So how do you faithfully introduce others to Jesus? How do you become a witness of Him? And John shows us right here how to do that. You faithfully introduce others to Jesus by making it clear that you're not the Savior. Isn't that what John does here? There is this group of leaders that are sent to John in verse 19. To find out what is going on. <laughs> there seems to be this incredible revival going on. And he's not connected to the leadership of the day. And they're a little concerned. There's been all these people who have claimed to be these, these, these messianic figures. And who led rebellions. And they're wondering which one is this? <laughs> which Where does John the Baptist fit into all these succession of people who have come before this? He's clearly not in our group. But he responds emphatically by denying that he is the Christ. He says, I am not the Christ in verse 20. Now, Christ is equivalent to the Messiah. We need to understand that. And notice he emphatically denies it. He doesn't just deny it. He emphatically denies it. You couldn't deny it more than this. Just think about the words. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed. (laughs) You know, it's almost like Hey, if there's one thing in the world that you need to know about me, if there's one thing that is most important you know about me than anything else, I am not the Christ. (laughs) All right? Don't mistake me for the Christ. I am not him. And they're not satisfied, so they continue to ask him, well, if you're not the Christ, then maybe you're someone else that's associated with the end times. Right? So they ask him, are you Elijah? I mean, he dresses like Elijah. He um, um, eats like Elijah. (laughs) Maybe he's Elijah. You know, Um, and because in Malachi four, verse five, the prophet said that God would send you a prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, So that would make sense, wouldn't it? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. And by the way, we don't have time to really go into this. But isn't it interesting that Jesus suggested that he was the Elijah that was to come? So is John ignorant here? And absolutely, John doesn't understand as much as we do. Right. For sure, because Jesus has not died yet. But, but I think also there is a difference between the way the people were thinking that he was literally going to be the Messiah versus the way God intended it figuratively, symbolically to be the Messiah, in the spirit of, Eli- of, of Elijah. So perhaps that's what John the Baptist means, that he is not literally Elijah. <laughs> but I don't know, one of those could be true. Um, but anyway, we do know that Jesus does say he is the Elijah that is to come sense of preparing the way for Jesus in that role. So running out of options, they ask him if he is the prophet, right? That's really the last option there. What else could he be? There's no other basis for authority to do what he's doing, so maybe he's the prophet. And he says, nope, I'm not. Thank you, John, for helping us out and giving us an answer. He's just stuck on this broken record of no, 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 no. (laughs) Right? You're not helping us out that much. And so you might say, Of course I would not claim to be the Messiah. Right? I don't think any of us would say I am the Messiah. But would you have as clear a testimony as Elijah does here? I mean, as John does here. If great things were happening in your life. What if God decided to do miraculous and mighty things through your ministry? What if it started to explode all over the place? Or even if little things happen, right? Let's just start there. Would you be tempted at least to take a little responsibility to turn people's attention away from Christ into yourself and your methods and your means of doing things? Do you realize you cannot really help people at all? You can't do any good for anyone. You can't bring them peace. You can't bring them hope. You can't save them one iota. You can do no good for anyone. And if they claim you can, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Only Jesus can save. And we need to be reminded of that. What makes it so difficult is that we crave to be acknowledged and admired. Don't we? We all do. Every one of us. And this is why we need our hearts transformed. We need hearts that love Jesus, that see that he is the only good anyone will ever have in this life. The best thing you can do in life is point others to him. And that requires that you say, I am not the Messiah. Turn people away from you and towards Christ. You faithfully introduce others to Jesus by identifying yourself as nothing more than a humble servant of God. John says, I am a voice in verse 23. He you, you see, there's so much out there today that is about finding our voice, right? right? I want to find my own unique voice. That is not what John was concerned about. He had a voice, but it wasn't his voice. It was God's voice. We should not be passionate about finding our own voice. We have nothing to say. The value of who we are is us speaking the words of God. And that's what John says, the summation of who he is is a voice. That's what he is. He's a voice. And nothing more. And he's God's voice. You can't say anything better than what God says. To speak God's word is the highest privilege and the greatest of service to do in this world. And this should remind us that we don't save, do we? We don't save. God saves. He's the only one who saves. We speak the words of the gospel. God saves. And we must remember that. God alone can save. There's this popular idea out there that would be considered complete nonsense by John the Baptist. John the Baptist would say that makes absolutely no sense. The idea is that Christians are to witness with their lives, meaning their actions, and if necessary, speak words. John would say, that is absolutely nonsense. That makes no sense at all. John does not say, first feed people and clothe people, and only if necessary, speak the words of God. And I'm not suggesting we abandon these things. They are important and sometimes even necessary. But nobody is ever going to be saved simply by watching our lives, no matter how well we live before them. God saves through his message of the gospel. And honestly, if we never speak, then they will look at us and think we are pretty good people. They will think we are pretty good people, and that is what they will know. And they will miss the gospel, and they will not be saved. We must speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, if anyone's going to be saved. John identifies himself as most lowly of servants in comparison to Christ in verse 26 through 28. You see, John was not only speaking, but he was baptizing. And his baptizing was speaking the gospel at the same time. The religious leaders want to know where did he get his authority to do this from? And he responds Interestingly enough, <laughs> I am not worthy to untie the shoes of the one who comes after me. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with the question he was asked about who gave you the authority to do this? (laughs) And it's as if he says, I want to focus my attention on the one who is coming. That is what I'm here for. So don't distract me. (laughs) So how does this express humility in his service to the Lord? Well, apparently in those days, uh, uh, a student would do anything for their rabbi everything for their rabbi they would serve him in every single way imaginable the only one thing they would not do is they would not untie or unbuckle the rabbi's sandals that is the one thing they wouldn't do even that was below them but john says here i am unworthy to even unbuckle the strings of his sandals In other words, not only was it not beneath him to do such a task for Christ, but it was above him to do such a task. The lowliest of tasks was above him to do for Jesus. Do we think of Jesus this way? I am unworthy even to unlatch his sandals. If you think of him this way, you will think of it as a privilege to do anything in the service of christ there'll be no ministry too insignificant too sacrificial for you to do for the sake of christ do you realize that instead of complaining of your duties or sacrifices you make for him you will be overwhelmed by the privilege to serve jesus in any and every capacity doesn't that shame us for how we complain about the service? that we are called to do for Jesus? Part of your witness for him is doing things that appear lowly to the world. And we should have incredible joy in doing even the lowliest of things. I wonder if we tend to think of Jesus as being here to serve us rather than the other way around. He is supposed to wash my sandals. He is supposed to fix my problems. We are here to serve him and praise God that we get to serve him in hard and difficult and challenging ways. That is the least we can do for our Savior. And let us take joy in those things rather than complain. And then in verse 30, John identifies Christ as the greater. (laughs) We don't even have time to go there, but that's John's heart in identifying Jesus as greater than himself as he ranks before me. You faithfully introduce others to Jesus by helping people to see their need for a savior through exposing their sinful condition. So once again, we go to verse 22 and the religious leaders are asking him, what is he all about? What is he doing? We just need an answer. And so John explains what he does. He identifies himself. As preparing people for the coming of the Lord. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, to cry out, prepare the way of the Lord, means a couple things, doesn't it? First of all, it means the king was at the door. It means he's near. He's at the door. And secondly, it means you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. Now, This is the thing. They believed he was at the door. They believed he was coming. The problem is they did not think they needed to be ready. They thought they were already ready. (laughs) They thought it was good news that the king was coming because they thought he would come to deliver them, that they were in a good place with God. John is saying you're getting it all wrong. They are not right with God. He is coming and you are not ready and you need to get ready for him to come. You see, they are not who they perceive themselves to be. And by the way, we need to be warned. That is oftentimes true of us as well. When God arrives, he demands his people to be prepared to meet him. And he demands we come to him his way by humbling ourselves. God doesn't just say, come as you are. He says, come humble yourself before me. That is the only way we are accepted by him. John was saying they need to level the hills, right? And fill in the holes so that the king's way would be smooth. In other words, you need to humble yourself. That's leveling the hills. In other words, you need your emptiness needs to be filled with faith. That's filling the potholes, right? And what would it sound like to preach such a message? It would sound like saying repent and believe or face judgment from the coming king. And this is exactly what John preached when he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus preached as well. And that's what it means to prepare the way for the Lord. I wonder if you have obstacles that are blocking Jesus' way. I wonder if there's pride in your life, if there's arrogance, if there's unbelief. Look to Jesus, repent, believe in him. I wonder how many people today would be excited by the thought of the coming of the King, but who would not be ready? If he did come back. The Bible says there are many who will be deceived on that day. And that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we not do this and do that? And he will say, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Understanding John's baptism helps us to understand the message of repentance. You see, baptism was supposedly um, conducted for those who were Gentiles wanting to enter the Jewish people. It was for outsiders. They would be baptized, which symbolizes the washing away of their defilement. And so, therefore, they could enter the community of God's people. But notice that here, John was baptizing the Jews. John is telling those who are supposed to be right with God, you need to be cleansed. He was spinning everything on his head. You can understand why the religious leaders were not happy With him. How dare he say such things of God's people? It's kind of like me going to people who go to church every week, people who are living a decent life, people who prayed sometime when they were young, and calling them to repent and believe and be saved. I imagine it would get some people upset. And one of my greatest concerns are for those who have grown up in the church who prayed a prayer at some point when they were young, but have no fruit. In their lives. And perhaps their parents or their pastors are trying to convince them that they are saved. And to give them confidence that they are believers. That is so sad. They have no right to think of themselves as being saved. And that's exactly how the Bible would approach such a situation. Listen to Matthew 3, verse 8 through 9. Listen to what John the Baptist says. John the Baptist said this. And listen to whether this is the way you talk of similar situations. He said bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father, for i tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist says that every tree that does not produce good fruit as a confirmation affirming their genuineness of their salvation will be burned in judgment. So don't give people false comfort. It's unhelpful. Finally, you faithfully introduce Jesus by working to magnify the glorious identity of who he is as our Savior. And we talked about this earlier on at the beginning. But if you look at it, virtually every name or title in the book of John, for Jesus is mentioned in verses 29 through 52. Lamb of God, Son of God, Messiah Christ, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man, not to mention the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. That's all going to come up in this whole section we'll look at next week. But you cannot be faithful as a witness unless you speak the truth of who Christ is. And sometimes, as I mentioned in Sunday school, we skip over who Christ is to get right to what he has done. And we have to be careful that what he has done will make no sense if we don't first proclaim and magnify the truth of who he is. So we are called to introduce, to witness to people about who Jesus is and to tell them what he has done. This is our great joy and what we should love to do. So here's my question. Do you need to be reintroduced to Jesus today? Of course you do. We all do. We continually need to be reintroduced to Jesus. You need to see his glory. You need to be amazed by him. You need to see him afresh. And what else could you possibly need this morning than to see Jesus? There is nothing you need more than that. And praise God, that's what his word is all about. The question is whether you want to introduce others to Jesus. And this is the thing. When you really see Jesus, you will want to introduce others to him. My question for you is, have you seen Jesus today? Have you seen him? Do you want to tell others about him? Is your greatest joy to proclaim this Christ to the world and their great need for him, regardless of the shame that it will bring upon you? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And you might be saying, but it's so fruitless. I feel so useless whenever I speak for Christ. John comments in John 1, verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And then I want to turn your attention to John 10, verse 40 through 42. We were told that John t- Jesus took his disciples back to the same place as John 1, verse 28. Listen to what it says. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. Notice that. He said where John had been baptizing at first. And Benny he came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Many believed in him there. Despite John's apparent failure, (laughs) as they apparently didn't believe at first, John the Baptist's witness was not wasted. Remember, God's timing is often different from ours. Remember, God is the one who saves. Continue to preach the word of God. And it might even be not until after your life is over. But we believe that God's word will not return void. We are here to be witnesses. Let us be faithful this week. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you, God, for this incredible, incredible task. Lord, what does it matter if there is a little bit of shame associated with our connection to you? What a privilege and a joy to bear a little bit of discomfort, to bear a little bit of shame. We are not worthy to untie your sandals, but what a privilege that we get to proclaim you and your great message. God, I pray that you would impress it on our hearts to be bold and courageous this week, no matter what the outcome, knowing that you are the one who works miracles, knowing that you are the one who saves. And God, if there is anyone in here who at this moment stands under the righteous and just wrath of God, whose eternity belongs only judgment and wrath, Lord, I pray that you would bring to their mind the discomfort and the terrible condition that they are in. May they feel the reality of their condition, and may you deliver them from their sin. Lord, protect us from pride and arrogance. that would prevent us from coming to our knees and turning towards you. Lord, you are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And thank you, God, that you are mighty to save. We pray that we go out and proclaim this message everywhere we go in Jesus' name. Amen.